The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting. It also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom. And his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, My peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. time our kids are going to head out to children's church so if you've got kiddos and that are in that age range then they're going to head back that way with Mr. Kevin and head back to an exciting time we've also got a nursery over there a uh, cry room in the back so uh, if you want to take advantage of any of that uh, then you are welcome to do so uh, so that's that's a, a lot more uh, info and teaching 
than we usually hit you with in a video, but I decided just to let the video do the heavy lifting for me this morning and <laughs> move on from there. <laughs> uh, but I, I love the way that that video describes peace, and we're going to think about uh, peace this morning, um, and, and I, I, I really resonate with this idea of, of especially in the way that it's discussed in, in Scripture, peace having to do more with the presence of something than it is with the absence of something. Um, and, and that is really different than the way that we think of it in a, in a worldly sense, in a cultural sense sometimes. But if we think about it, I think it makes sense to, with how we often internalize that within our heads, that, that I am not at peace if things are out of order, if things are not as they should. And so something needs to be healed, something needs to be brought into that for me to be brought back into a state of, of peace. And so I think it connects with how we think of it within our heads a lot of times, but not necessarily in how we think of it from a worldly point of view or how we think about it described. Uh, and so I want to repeat kind of what they close with in the video uh, where he says, Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things on heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. True peace requires taking, taking, taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness. Uh, there are a lot of places that we could have gone to wrap up our look at Paul. We've been in this short kind of four-week look at, at Paul and just kind of trying to take a, an overarching view of, of looking at Paul as a person, what makes him tick, what are some of the big threads that we see in his writings, and then how do we see that in his writings, and, and what does it mean for us? And so I've got about two and a half pages of cut notes from this sermon that would tell you about all the different things that I thought we could have kept talking about for, for this series, but I'm not going to try to fit about four sermons into one this morning, so some of that. If you've got other questions about Paul that you think, hey, why didn't Warren talk about this? Come and ask me, bring it up in class today, whatever. But I want to kind of to end today with this scene that I think is really telling about Paul. Uh, that we get to later in Paul's life, we, 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 he's had this experience that we've been talking about, kind of centering on this experience that he has with Jesus earlier in his life. Now Paul's been traveling around setting up these little Jewish, uh, these little communities of, of uh, sometimes Jewish people, sometimes Gentile people, sometimes mixed of, of people who are now in this community of, of Jesus uh, that, that looks very different than, than past communities of church have looked. He's been setting up these communities, he's been writing letters to these communities, and now we find Paul in jail, as he often has been. And one way or another, Paul comes to meet this runaway slave named Onesimus. Uh, and we don't exactly know how these two come into contact with each other, or exactly what the, the circumstances were that led with Onesimus seemingly running away from his master, uh, but somehow Paul comes into contact with Onesimus, and these two men develop very quickly, apparently, a, a deep and impactful relationship with each other in which Onesimus comes to believe in Jesus and becomes a follower and disciple of Jesus himself. And so now, Paul's in a moral and theological and ethical dilemma. What do I have this runaway slave do? Uh, Paul wants to keep him with him. Paul sees great benefit for him himself, uh, not selfishly, but in his ministry of having Onesimus uh, go with him, assuming Paul's able to get out of prison. And, 
and Onesimus can be a great asset to his ministry and to the kingdom. Uh, but that's going to present some, some difficulties later on because it just so happens that Paul knows Onesimus' master and is planning to go back through Colossae where Philemon, his master, lives. And so you can see this is going to create some difficulties if Paul shows back up in Colossae with Onesimus in tow as his helper. Um, in addition to awkwardness, there are legal issues here. Uh, Paul is basically harboring a fugitive. Uh, so there's some, some question here about what Paul should do. But if Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, that's asking a lot of Onesimus. Um, and it's also going to put Philemon in a bit of a tight spot. Uh, so what do we do with this situation? We're going to look at, in just a little bit, the book of Philemon this morning. We, look, we, we went through it on a Wednesday night a while back, but, but I wanted to close with this series with that book for a few different reasons that we'll get to in a minute. Um, but we're going to come back to Philemon in a minute. But I want to, before we get that too far out of our heads, uh, read this quote from N.T. Wright, who I've re referenced a couple times in this series. Uh, but N.T. Wright said that Paul believed, and he believed that God believed, in ultimate freedom a freedom of creation itself from the slavery to decay, a freedom that would mean resurrection life for all God's children. As always, Paul's challenge was to bring this cosmic vision into the real world of compromised and perplexed humans. And he hit upon a plan to make Philemon and Onesimus a, work, a small working model of what Messiah-based freedom might look like. Uh, so, before we get to Philemon, we're going to back up just a little bit and do um, a little more looking at this kind of understanding that Paul had of peace, because I think it's very important to understand before really diving into Philemon. Uh, I think we have this image of Paul as this kind of fiery, in-your-face type of person, and, and some of that uh, is, is certainly borne out in Scripture, and we get from the picture of Paul that we have in, in Acts and the picture of him that we have in his writings. Uh, he is very bold. He is at times confrontational. He is relentless in pursuing the things that he thinks are important and the things that he thinks that, that God has placed on his heart and given him charge to do. He is certainly anything but timid. Uh, however, Paul is continually driving towards peace. And I think if you take peace as the idea, as, as I said at the beginning, that, that peace is mostly the absence of conflict or, or peace is, is kind of just things just kind of being calm and, and, and no confrontation or whatever, then, then you can see those things as being in conflict with each other. This idea of, of Paul as this fiery, in-your-face person and, and also someone who is relentlessly pursuing peace. But I actually don't think those two things are competing with each other at all, uh, that they both flow out of this ethos of Paul, if you will, of someone who is, is re relentlessly pursuing kingdom work, um, and, and they both speak to how he sees that coming about. And I don't think we can miss this point of, of Paul as peacemaker and Paul as peace pursuer as we think about who he was, what made him, what made him tick, and how that influenced his writing. Uh, we have this man who is a, a, a self-proclaimed violent persecutor of the church, the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, and now here he is, post-transformation, a staunch advocate of peace. And his understanding of peace seems to flow directly from his understanding of the resurrection. Uh, everything for Paul hinged on the resurrection. 
Interestingly enough, Paul never writes about the birth of Jesus, but he writes about the resurrection of Jesus over and over and over again, even at one point saying that he carries around the death of Christ within his own body, which is very striking imagery. Um, but, but the resurrection of Jesus was everything for Paul. And I think he would be a little surprised uh, to come into some of our homes and see how much emphasis we put around Christmas <laughs> compared to the emphasis that we put around Easter. I think he would say, shouldn't you, like, th- these things should be flipped. And, and uh, he would probably be happy that at least church attendance is higher on Easter than Christmas. But this idea that we put this whole series, uh, this whole season around the birth of Christ um, instead of the resurrection, I think would be at least a little weird to Paul. Because for Paul, everything, everything, everything was about the resurrection. Uh, And on one level, the resurrection for Paul proves that there's something different about Jesus and that his resurrection then gives us hope and confidence for our own resurrection. Because as we're going to see in the scripture we're going to look at in just a minute, there was a difference in thought amongst Jewish people about whether or not there was a resurrection. Some thought this is all there is, this life is all there is, so you make the best of it uh, with what you have now because this is all there is and after this we're we're back to dirt. Uh, then others said, no, this isn't all there is. Of course there's a resurrection. If, if this life is all there is, then, then what's the point? Then, um, then you know, there, there has to be a resurrection, otherwise all this is just meaningless. Sounds about like conversations that we still have in our culture and our world today, right? Well, the, these same conversations existed within Jewish culture. Uh, and so Paul thought it was important just to have an, an understanding of a resurrection. But there was also more to it than that. On a deeper level, the resurrection has stripped sin of its power and effectiveness and hold and bondage over people once and for all in a way that nothing else had been able to in the past and nothing else will be able to in the future. And so Paul sees himself as existing at this incredibly crucial time in human history because this event of the resurrection has, has just recently happened. And and. Paul is saying, wait a minute, guys, this is really big, and we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of the impact and the meaning and importance of what has happened here. That in the resurrection uh, that God has ushered in through Jesus, reconciled peace between God and people that hasn't existed since way back in the garden at the beginning of Genesis. And so Paul brings all of this uh, understanding of resurrection into the picture in 1 Corinthians 15. When, as I said, he's talking about resurrection in general and kind of defending a theology of resurrection in general. Uh, but he says this, and this has taken a few different things from, from 1 Corinthians 15 and kind of pushing them together. So if you want to try to follow along, you can, but I'm going to be skipping some parts and they're going to be on the screen. Uh, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And otherwise, those of you who are saying there is no resurrection, then, then what, what do you do with Jesus then? <laughs> You've got some tough choices to make. Uh, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus wasn't really raised for the dead, then then we just look like a bunch of fools running around for nothing. Uh, So you can't say this isn't important. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. And then he's going to continue that line of thinking on, but we'll stop there. Uh, but notice how in talking about the, the weight and the magnitude of Paul of, of the resurrection, uh, Paul says, goes to such extents to say, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then your faith is futile because you would still be in your sins. That without this resurrection moment, that there would be no force that would have dealt with sin, um, and so all of this that we're doing has no point. Uh, and we might as well just go back to the old stuff or, or whatever Paul pictured um, as being the alternative to Jesus. Um, but everything that Paul is about centers around uh, the resurrection, the blow to sin that has come through Christ's resurrection. And for Paul, that is the ultimate picture of freedom. And so, as stated in the video we watched, this freedom that we have from sin through the resurrection is what creates peace between us and God. Uh, and so he writes this in Colossians. He says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell within him, him being Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so I think Paul's understanding then of the resurrection is his theological basis for what we see throughout the rest of his writings, which is this call for believers in Jesus to live at peace with each other. This is prevalent then throughout the rest of his writings, especially in Romans, uh, where he says things like this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Or just a couple of chapters later where he says, let, uh, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And so if the resurrection creates peace between God and and people, reconciliation between God and his creation, then it should also, in Paul's mind, bring about pre peace and reconciliation between people and people groups, uh, nations, individual relationships, whatever it is. Um, this should bring, bring about this peace and reconciliation and this drive to pursue those things within our own lives. This is the impact of the resurrection Paul sees. And that's going to have real life implications on how people get along, on how groups get along, on how nations get along, on and on and on you can go. Uh, so again, to quote N.T. Wright, as we move back towards Philemon, he says, if this was real, this being this whole kind of idea and understanding of Jesus and resurrection, if it wasn't just a grandiose idea in his head, it had to work on the ground. Real Jews, real Greeks, Real men and women, real slaves, real masters. Now that last part may be a little cringeworthy for us. <laughs> uh, because this is part of what I thought about with Paul that, that I think, a, and I've, I've mentioned this before, a modern kind of criticism of sorts for Paul is why wouldn't he have taken more of a stand against something like slavery? Uh, he seems to have positive things at times to say about women and inclusion of women, but why would he seemingly not go uh, farther in some of his writings on that? Um, and there are all, all other kind of issues we can get into with that, so I'm not going to try to preach, as I said, four sermons in one, but instead I want us to spend some time in Philemon and let Philemon stand on its own legs this morning. Uh, and so if you want to turn there with me, you can turn to the, the, the short little book of Philemon. Uh, it's one page, at least in my Bible it is, and so if you don't know where it is, it's towards the end of the New Testament. Hebrews is a little bit of a longer uh, book, so if you can find that, you just go right to the beginning of Hebrews, and, and there's Philemon. Um, 
But a couple of weeks ago, we discussed Titus as sort of a case study of sorts for law and circumcision. Um, and as I referenced at the beginning, I think Philemon is a case study for a whole other set of issues uh, and problems and situations. And so we're going to read Philemon together um, and then talk about some implications of it. And so I'll probably make a couple of comments as we go through here. Uh, but we're going to read um, all of this letter. Again, it's a short letter, so if you want to follow along with me. We'll pick up from the beginning. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a couple of things to note here at the beginning. First of all, all of Paul's letters have this idea of grace and peace to you at the beginning. Uh, every letter begins in some way with this phrase, grace and peace to you. These are the tenets that, that Paul's message and that Paul's gospel hang under, grace and peace. Everything is connected for Paul to grace and peace. And so all of his letters have that at the beginning. Uh, also, interestingly, in the first three verses, the you is plural, so in Texas vernacular, that would be grace and peace to y'all. That's what he says at the beginning. <laughs> uh, he says that in the first three verses, and he comes back to that in the end, uh, beginning in verse 23. It's y'all and the end, too. In the middle, beginning where we're about to pick up in verse 4, it's singular you to Philemon. So he's addressing all this to the whole church, to y'all, and now he's going to say, okay, but now to you. Uh, I always thank my God as I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Uh, Philemon's probably feeling pretty good right now, but he's setting Philemon up for something. He's, he's laying the groundwork, saying, these are all the things that I know to be true about you. Uh, I've heard about these things, and theologically, these are the things I know you believe. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Um, interesting note here. So this letter would be delivered to, to Philemon and his church, um, and Onesimus would be coming with the letter, um, and probably also with the letter of Colossians. Both of these are probably delivered at the same time. Um, and so this is just very odd for everyone in the church. Why is this slave coming back? All these questions. Um, but, but Onesimus is probably standing there as this is being read. He says, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not, be see, would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while 
was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. That had the intended effect. (laughs) I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Now listen to what he says, because earlier in the, remember in 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 the kind of beginning of this, he says, you have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So now listen to what he says, Uh, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When Paul talks about living at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you, I think this is what he has in mind. Uh, Diving into hard situations, um, into hard circumstances, and saying, okay, what does the grace and mercy and peace of Jesus look like for this? What does it look like for the ways that I relate to people around me? What does it look like for the ways that I conduct my business? What does it look like for the ways that I live in relation to other people? And am I willing to ask the hard questions about what may need to look different in my life in order for those things to come about? Uh, There's an organization that I came to know about this week uh, called the Global Immersion Project. And so I just want to read to you a little bit about what they, how they describe themselves. Uh, this is from their website. That they say, what would the world look like if the church took seriously our call to be peacemakers? In pursuit of the answer, we immersed ourselves into conflicts around the globe. What we discovered is that peacemaking is not just a good idea. It's the mission of God and the vocation of God's people. Our journey led us to another question. Who are peacemakers And what do they do? Having studied alongside academic experts, walked with peacemaking practitioners all over the world, and lived it out on the streets of our neighborhoods, we've developed a four-practice framework for everyday peacemaking. Today, we're watching entire communities transform as individuals and churches embody these four practices. So I want you to listen to these practices that they have kind of developed and, and seen and observed. And, and then I want you to pay attention to the ways in which we see, I think, all of these come into play in the way that Paul deals with this situation in Colossae um, and specifically between Philemon and Onesimus. The first one, uh, the first of this framework of peacemaking is to see. Uh, this, this initiative describes this as everyday peacemakers see the humanity dignity, and image of God in everyone. Um, and I think that everyone there is important because typically as we think about bringing about peace, I think it's oftentimes easier for us to see the humanity of people on one side of the issue or another. It's easy for us to see the humanity of the people we agree with usually. 
Uh, but Paul, first of all, extends to Philemon this, this language of partnership. And so Paul reaches out and says, I, I recognize your value and your worth and who you are in the gospel, Philemon. Imagine if, if Paul starts this letter out saying, Philemon, you idiot, what are you doing still owning slaves? Uh, that's going to have a very different tone to the letter and may have a very different impact. But instead, Paul says, you've been a great helper for us. You've been a partner. Uh, I, I've heard about the great things you've been doing. And I'm confident that that's going to continue as you continue thinking about what the grace and peace of Jesus means for you. But he also holds up the worth and the value of Onesimus. Um, and he says, in a, in a part that may sound kind of brutal to us, um, he was once useless to you, but now he is useful. Uh, and that is connected to Onesimus' name, which means useful. And so it's this play on words and this, this idea of thinking, you may have thought that this guy whose name is useful was useless as a slave. Actually, he's, he's not. I want you to see him not as a slave, but as a, a person. He's holding up the value of both of these people and, and recognizing their value, uh, their dignity, their God-given uh, humanity, and saying, I want to bring these two together. Uh, the next part is to immerse. Everyday peacemakers move towards conflict with tools to heal rather than to win. Uh, how many times have we seen people or how many times have we ourselves moved into a situation to win an argument rather than to bring healing, right? Uh, we want our side to be the side that's right. Uh, we want to look for who we can blame. Um, it's amazing how people can look at the same situation and find people on any side of it that fits their narrative to blame, right? <laughs> you can think about this at a personal level with situations in your family, situations at work, situations in our, our country, our world, whatever it may be. Um, but I want you to listen to this verse again with what Paul says. He says, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. In other words, Paul thinks there's a clear answer to this situation. Um, and Paul says, I could be bold enough to tell you what to do. Paul sees himself as having that authority. But I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. For Paul, this isn't about winning. This isn't about who's right, it's about healing. Uh, the third practice is to contend. They say everyday peacemakers contend not by getting even, but getting creative in love. Again, another verse from, from Philemon. Uh, as I said, the beginning is addressed to y'all, and then this is the first, first verse addressed specifically to Philemon. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about Listen to this, your love for all his holy people. And so now Paul's going to make Onesimus, I mean, Paul's going to make Philemon think about this. Who is included in all God's holy people? Because the way that I answer that um, is going to tell me a lot about how I go about living. Um, I would argue that Jesus says we even love our enemies, so that extends to a whole lot of people. Um, but this is the point that Paul is making. I've heard about your love for God's people. Uh, now, what are, how is that going to play itself out? Uh, and then finally, the last one is restore. Everyday peacemakers share tables with former enemies and celebrate the big and small ways God is restoring our broken world. And I think that is precisely the goal of this letter, 
right? The goal of this letter is to bring people who would, who would typically be seen as adversaries, who would typically be seen as, as being confrontational in their relationship, um, and there, to be a, a relationship just full of, of injustice and, and all of those things that we would think about around a, a relationship like master and slave. Uh, again, slavery was, a, was different in that time than it was in the ways that we think about it, but it still wasn't great. <laughs> it's not something you would strive for. Uh, it wasn't the, the picture of kind of reconciled relationship between people. And so this is the, the image that Paul has in mind of Christian community, is of, of master and former slave coming together under Christ. Uh, and the only way, uh, and I think that we see this, that not only would Philemon... Paul says, or Paul hopes, welcome Onesimus back as a dear brother. But notice that he says, uh, he is dearer to me and even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. That Paul is trying to get Philemon to kind of see an elevated understanding of humanity, of people, um, and, and that this idea of Jesus needs, needs to bring all of that into the picture. Uh, again, you can go back to look at um, in, in Colossians, Paul references Onesimus, um, and at the end of Colossians, he says, he, uh, referencing someone else, is coming to you with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. Um, that probably hit them with a gut punch if they read Colossians before they read Philemon. <laughs> like, what? What are you talking about? What's that other letter you got there? <laughs> Let's get to that one. There's a huge difference, I think, between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Uh, peacekeeping uh, often comes much easier, uh, at least for some people and in some cases, and often takes minimal effort. Uh, you, don't, you just simply don't engage in a situation that may make you or someone else uncomfortable or uneasy, and you try to avoid conflict. Uh, as a conflict avoider and a nine on the Enneagram, uh, that's my type of language. <laughs> I'm all about keeping peace. That's what comes easy to me. Uh, peace, keeping peace is about not making waves. Everyone get along and we'll be good. The problem is it often leads to a false sense of peace that isn't really peace at all. Uh, if true peace is taking what's broken and making it whole, if it's setting things right, if it's the presence of something more than the absence of something, then that requires moving into situations that are in need of wholeness, reconciliation, and healing. And that requires peacemaking, which by its very wording implies creating rather than avoiding or maintaining. It's what we see Paul model in this letter, which is birthed out of the message he has been preaching, which is birthed out of a Savior who immersed himself into our brokenness in the most powerful way imaginable to bring about peace. In Jesus, we witness the one who sets the ultimate example of peacemaking. Jesus saw us in our state of need and was willing to immerse himself fully into our world and story, completely giving up of himself in order to forever defeat darkness and sin, not by contending with violence, but instead with love. Establishing forever a table at which all are welcome to come and celebrate the ways that God is restoring our broken world in our own broken lives. And so may we be people who are doing that as well, striving to bring about peace, striving to bring about reconciliation, and celebrating the ways that God is restoring our world. One of the ways that we do that is around the table of communion. 
as we share in this meal to remember Jesus and all that he has done for us um, and to celebrate the ways that God is bringing about restoration within us, restoration within our world, and hopefully the ways in which we can be a part of that restoration and the work that God is doing in the world. And so may we be people who are moving towards peace as well, and may we remember the peace that is offered to us in Jesus as we share in this meal. So I'm going to have the band come back, and we're going to sing a song again together uh, as we prepare our, our thoughts and our hearts for communion. Uh, we'll sing this together, and then we'll pray our prayer of confession together um, as we move towards sharing this meal around the table at which Christ is our host. So would you please stand, and we'll sing.
prayer of confession together as we prepare to share in communion. I'll pray the parts in, in white, and then together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest path, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. You may be seated.